You know their names, Bonnie and Clyde, and you know a little of what happened to them, but y'all are just not gonna believe this. This is it. This is the real thing. You've heard about it on the radio and seen it in the papers. Ten big acts for the price of one ticket. Behind this curtain, you'll see the Fiji mermaid, the giant red bat, the six-foot man-eating chicken. They're all real, and they're all on the inside. You'll see the Ethiopian glass here. folks what are you waiting for admission is free to Ballycast, the podcast of the carnival sideshow and variety arts you're just in time we're gonna have a free show we're gonna bring out the strange people the weird people here they come now watch the doorway you'll see what they do you'll hear what they talk about they're all alive on the inside get your ticket and come in Ballycast presents news and interviews with performers and showmen some important words of warning. This podcast is not family friendly. I'm not even thinking about it. So listen at your own risk. The performances and stunts described are not safe, even for experienced performers. Never attempt them without the direct supervision of someone who already performs them. Please use your common sense. And if you don't have any, stop listening now. Here's your host, Wayne Kaiser. Welcome to Valleycast, episode 167, brought to you free by Blue Ridge Entertainment. For showmen, performers, and fans of the sideshow, carnival, and variety arts. This year's Miss Bonnie Parker. Glad to meet you. I'm Clyde Barrett. Right. We rob banks. The feature segment of today's show, the certified, genuine, one and only Bonnie and Clyde death car. Uh, cars. All seven or more of them. Please drive safely and dodge the bullets. It's Ballycast. Here we go. Keep your hands and arms inside the car and remain seated until the ride comes to a complete stop. Sad news. Doug Higley, interviewed in Ballycast episode 17, died April the 9th. He was many, many things, a voice actor, the author of a book about dark rides, and especially a maker of excellently crafted sideshow gaffes. He called them zibits. What first made you decide, I want to put a thing in a trailer and see if people come and see it? Lou Dufour, back in the day, had a show, The Life Show, Babies in Jars, and it was statuary. My first pair of breasts that I ever saw as a kid were on a cave woman in one of the divorce shows. Cave woman who was nursing a baby, you know, because it was all about life. And I realized that you didn't have to be in Coney Island. You didn't need a storefront to take a show out. And it just impressed the heck out of me that somebody could put a tent up and do a show like that because I've always been a museum fanatic. You'll see just one of them illustrated on the episode webpage. A pocket-sized giant flea in a can, a portable miniature grind show all by itself. What do you say to the man who says, that's just some old thing you picked up out of a trash can somewhere? Do you know it could be? (laughs) You're you're selling something strange. You're not telling them that you're going to see a giant gorilla and you go in there and it's just a stupid monkey. You're not lying in any way, shape, or form. 
So at the end of the day, meaning the end of that one-minute period, they have to have seen something strange in order for you to have delivered and them to be satisfied, which is why they are always satisfied and you always deliver, because whatever they're looking at, no matter what it is, is strange. He crafted dozens of Fiji mermaids, chupacabras, baby mummified mini elephants, and a how-to guide for exhibiting these strange things at carnivals, even at flea markets. You have a very specific set of suggestions for how to successfully exhibit these. Correct. And it's inarguable. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, why is it inarguable? Because it works. And it works so well under so many conditions and has been proven by so many people to have been just an ideal set of, of, of details and suggestions that even the slightest change can alter the chemistry. And once you alter the chemistry, you, in effect, lose people. Now, let me set up an example. If you have a two-headed baby and you're on a, on a midway in a big carnival, that's one thing. And you can do what the heck you want to and in get who you can get, which is mostly punks and uh, people that want to see a two-headed baby. What this was designed for was to get everybody walking by, not turn anybody off or cause anyone in the crowd to have a negative thought about what it's all about. And he was devoted to encouraging talent, especially unsure young talent. He is survived by his wife, Lori, and wherever he is, we thank him and wish him all the best. Gilbert Gottfried died. He could tell a dirty joke better than anyone. Look out for this one. No, I mean it. Really, truly, look out. A talent agent is sitting in his office. A noble American family walks in. Ah, father and mother, son and daughter, a big fluffy dog. The family has blonde hair and blue eyes and bright skin. And uh, that talent agent looks up and goes, all right, let's see what you do. So the father drops his pants and takes off his shirt. He's totally naked. He undresses his wife, starts fucking his wife on the floor. Then the son drops his pants, takes his shirt off. His sister takes all our clothes off. The son and the daughter start fucking on the floor, too. And the dog is pissing on them. (laughs) Then the mother turns around and starts blowing the son. The father starts fist-fucking the daughter in the ass as the daughter is licking out her brother's asshole. And the brother at the time is chewing on the dog's balls. The dog starts fucking the mother while the mother is eating out the the little girl's asshole while she is fist-fucking her brother in the ass. If you're not keeping up with this, I'll start at the beginning. It's important if you miss any part, then the joke makes no sense. Then the father starts fucking. 
fucking your son in the ass as the son is eating his mother's cunt, as the mother is eating the daughter's cunt, as the daughter is blowing the dog. Because really, why leave the dog out? That would be wrong. It would be very wrong. Now, the dog takes a tremendous shit on the floor. Now, you think, if, if I could pause for a second, you'd think that at this point, the talent agent would go, oh, for God's sakes, I'm getting on the phone and calling the police. But no. I'm just saying, you know, in case you've ever questioned that. And, and then the son climbs up on a table puts a noose around his neck and jumps off. And through auto-asphyxiation, see, this is educational, you start choking, and that makes you have a big orgasm. Try it when you get home. <laughs> no, really, really, I'd like you to. I've, I've looked at a few of you, and I don't see that it would be a major loss. <laughs> if any of you hung yourselves tonight and the cop said... Well, he was, he, uh, shot come when he, uh, oh, good enough, good enough. I saw him when he was alive. There was no point in him living alone. And then, uh, the father takes a tremendous shit on the floor, and the mother pulls out her glass eye, and the son starts fucking her in the eye socket. And, and they're fucking and sucking for about, like, five hours in shit and piss and cum and, and then uh, afterwards they stand up and they take a bow. <laughs> and the talent agent, nonplussed by this, goes, hmm, that's an interesting act you have there. What do you call yourself? And they say, the aristocrats. <laughs> If you never heard it before, believe me, it's a classic joke. Welcome to the Coney Island Circus Sideshow. Without further ado, it's showtime! Step inside for the greatest show in the world! Greetings from your neighbors at Coney Island, USA. At the corner of Surf Avenue and West 12th Street, Coney Island, USA is home to the Sideshows by the Seashore Theater, the only family-friendly live entertainment venue in Coney Island where you can see electrifying feats performed by real people. Visit the Freak Bar and our gift shop. We are also home to the Coney Island Museum, right upstairs. Chill out in our air-conditioned theater as you cheer on our astonishing performers doing things you wouldn't imagine were possible. Our performers are available for private parties and events. We hope to see you soon. There is an ongoing conflict between the current management of Coney Island, USA, and Dick Zygan, its founder. I don't know enough about it to even have an opinion. I suggest you hear about it and decide for yourself, or perhaps simply reserve your judgment. Laugh a while you can, monkey boy! 
George MacArthur, better known as George the Giant, unveiled a limited run of a hundred action figures. They look good. They seem to be going fast. I can't say if he has any left. You'll have to ask him. By the way, read a banned book today. You can always put it down if it's boring <laughs> or horribly offensive. Hitler. But more likely, you'll learn what they're trying to keep from you, and at the very least, you'll have something new to talk about. <laughs> Elsewhere in the news, on April 2nd in New York, the northwest corner of Broadway and 28th Street was officially named Tin Pan Alley. That was the concentration of sheet music publishing houses in the 19th and 20th centuries, a major force in American culture. The careers of Irving Berlin, George Gershwin, Cole Porter, and many others shaped the music of the day with many songs that have endured. Earlier, the New York City Landmarks Preservation Commission designated five buildings as individual landmarks, a Tin Pan Alley Historic District. The start of Tin Pan Alley as a whole is usually dated to about 1885, when a number of music publishers set up shop in the same district of Manhattan. That era is generally considered to have ended in the 1950s with the rise of rock and roll. Want to have even more fun? Learn stuff? Subscribe to Ballycast. You're not in school anymore. There's no homework. There are links on the webpage at Ballycast.com or subscribe on iTunes. And all previous episodes are available as well. See you next episode. And now a word about one of our most popular products. In our online shop, here's one you'll use. From 1948, the full set of directions for making a blade box. The classic blow-off that earns dollars by the hatful. The blade box lines them up with dollars in their hand and sends them home happy. Why would anybody pay an extra dollar to see a magic trick? It works like this. Now, Sheila is going to step behind the curtain for a moment and remove her costume. We're not doing this to be lewd or crude. She must remove her clothes to be able to perform this act. Here, honey, just hand out that costume. I'll fold it up nice for you. And now, she will recline in the cabinet, and I'm going to close the lid. Notice that the lid has openings for 13 steel blades. I'm not going to cut this beautiful young lady, because as I insert each blade, she's bending twisting and contorting her body in and around every one of these blades of steel, just like a snake, just like a rubber band, she can bend and stretch as these blades threaten to sever the most delicate parts of her body. And now, I'm going to give you a chance to come up on stage and see for yourself. Sheila has agreed to expose herself to your gaze, so you can come up here to see how she does it. You're going to see how her amazing body can twist around these razor-sharp blades. You're going to see the glint of the cold steel against the texture of her skin.
Sheila feels that exposing her secret and her body this way is worth one dollar because she's paid only through your curiosity and your generosity. Just hand your dollar to the man at the foot of the steps and come up and see this beautiful little girl in the state she is in now, unashamed and waiting for you to view her. Digitized and carefully restored in PDF format for just $4 for a real piece of carnival history or a great working blow-off that still plays today. Use the link on the podcast page. We will return for the second act in just a moment. From Brill's Bible of Building Plans comes this recipe for popcorn balls. Mix together in the kettle 2 pounds granulated sugar, 10 ounces glucose, half a cup water. Boil just long enough to dissolve the sugar, then add 1 tablespoon vinegar. Boil until it strings a fine hair or forms a hard ball in cold water. Turn off the fire, add 1 teaspoon salt and whip fast. Add about 3 quarters or a little more, of a 5-gallon can of popped corn and coat with the paddle. Mold the popped corn into balls about 3 or 4 inches in diameter. Press them just firmly enough to hold together. You should get 25 or 30 balls from the batch. Keep a pan of cold water handy in which to dip your hands after molding each ball to avoid the popcorn and candy burning and sticking to your hands. Wrap each ball in waxed paper. Tips. In mixing caramel corn you can use a metal bushel basket. These have no square corners. In candy in candied apples, caramel corn or popcorn balls, after testing in water, bite and see if brittle enough not to stick to your teeth. The glucose referred to is confectioner's glucose, a syrup available fairly cheap on Amazon. At the moment it runs $12 to $14 for a 2-pound container. Corn syrup is less suitable because that has a much higher water content. Mmm, delicious. Saturday and Sunday only, here at your state fair, the one and only Bonnie and Clyde Death Guard. See it here, first time in your area, and you may never have a chance to see it again. They robbed and murdered their way across the South, killing a dozen people, maybe more. Their life of crime led straight to a violent death. See for yourself, bullet holes, hundreds of them, from the day the law caught up to these two and gunned them down like vicious dogs, too dangerous to live. Toad with their bodies still in it from the roadside where they met their bloody end. You, sir, are you fearless? You, ma'am, are you brave enough? Look. Look inside. See the dried blood from their last moments. See it for yourself. And for just a small charge, you can sit in the same front seat where they died. We'll take your picture so you can show your friends. Saturday and Sunday only, here at your state fair. The one and only Bonnie and Clyde Death Talk. Bonnie and Clyde were pretty looking people But I can tell you people They were the devil's children Bonnie and Clyde Began their evil doing 
From the moment they met, Clyde Barrow and Bonnie Parker expected a violent end. She wrote that in one of her poems. Someday they'll go down together. They'll bury them side by side. To few, it'll be grief. To the law, a relief. But it's death for Bonnie and Clyde. Each of them and many of their families and friends were violent career criminals. They and their gang murdered at least nine police officers and four civilians, maybe more. Bonnie, a petite blonde, never married Clyde. Early on, she was an honor student and enjoyed writing poetry and performing in talent shows. But she dropped out of high school in 1926 and married her high school sweetheart. Roy Thornton, days before she turned 16. He turned out to be an abusive husband. She left him after a few months, but never actually divorced him. Clyde Barrow looked up to his older brother, Buck. 
Buck had already embarked on the life of crime, and Clyde followed in his footsteps. Clyde was first arrested in late 1926 at age 17, along with Buck, for stealing turkeys. Clyde had a few legit jobs, but spent more time robbing stores and stealing cars. From the day he met Bonnie early in 1930, when she was 19, they were inseparable, until he was sent to a prison farm just weeks later for auto theft, and then escaped using a gun she managed to smuggle into him. He was recaptured and sent back to prison with a much longer sentence. At that time, Clyde still looked fairly youthful, almost harmless, and that may have left him vulnerable to being repeatedly raped by inmate Ed Crowder. He finally took revenge, luring Crowder into a bathroom and smashing his skull in with a lead pipe. A lifer took credit for the killing. That was Clyde Barrow's first murder. To avoid hard labor in the fields for the rest of his 14-year sentence, he chopped two of his own toes off and walked with a limp for the rest of his life. Almost unbelievably, he was paroled just days later, and he left prison a hardened and bitter man. A fellow inmate said that he watched Clyde change from a schoolboy to a rattlesnake. In 1932... Bonnie landed herself behind bars after getting caught during a hardware store robbery. While in her cell, she wrote ten different poems that she titled Poetry from Life's Other Side. Almost immediately upon his release, Clyde returned to robbing grocery stores, gas stations, even funeral homes, one after another. None of them, not Bonnie, not Clyde or Buck, who'd just gotten released from prison, or any of their associates, would hesitate to murder anyone who got in their way, police officers or innocent civilians. This year's Miss Bonnie Parker. Glad to meet you. I'm Clyde Barrett. Clyde. We robbed banks. Bonnie was a waitress in a small cafe. Clyde Barrow was the rounder that took her away They both robbed and killed until both of them died So goes the legend of Bonnie and Clyde The poems that she wrote of the life that they led and Told of the lawmen left dying or dead Some said Clyde made her life a shame Legend made Bonnie the head of the game The rampage grew wilder with each passing day The odds growing smaller with each getaway With the end growing closer the harder they fought With blood on their hands they were bound to get caught They drove back from town on one bright summer day When a man they befriended stepped out in the way With no thought of dying they pulled to the side But deathly they're waiting for Bonnie and Clyde Two years of running was ended that day 
For robbing and killing they both had to pay But we'll always remember how they lived and died So goes the legend of Bonnie and Clyde Bonnie and Clyde Bonnie and Clyde How did people like this become legends? Even get movies and a Broadway musical about their career. This was the era of the public enemy. The papers were full of stories about publicity hound FBI director J. Edgar Hoover and publicity-loving criminals like John Dillinger. The Barrow Gang's exploits captured the attention of the press and the people. The economy had gone wildly up and down from the oil boom of 1928 till the Great Depression in the fall of 1929. There was no money to be had and no jobs to earn any. People blamed the banks. The unregulated banks blamed the people, and nobody liked the police. To everyday folks without a penny to their names, these outlaws were as thrilling as a drugstore dime novel and as cheaply romantic as a soap opera on the radio. The average husband or wife found a guilty pleasure, a source of titillation in their humdrum depression lives. These two had to have been living like animals, having illicit unmarried sex. <gasps> and just imagine what they must be up to at night with those other men in their gang. Clyde loved cars, and in a letter he wrote in 1934 addressed to Henry Ford himself, he said, While I still have got breath in my lungs, I will tell you what a dandy car you make. I have drove Fords exclusively when I could get away with one. For sustained speed and freedom from trouble, the Ford has got every other car skinned, and even if my business hadn't been strictly legal... It don't hurt anything to tell you what a fine car you got in the V8. Bonnie loved to take pictures, and in one hideout, after they left, someone found undeveloped film that would soon be on the front page of every newspaper coast to coast. Those photos made them very recognizable, and that made their daily lives tough. So did having five people crammed into the one car. Barrow missed a detour sign, drove into a ravine, and the car flipped. Bonnie got third-degree burns to her leg, either from a gasoline fire or a battery acid or both. One of the gang later said, She'd been burned up so bad none of us thought she was going to live. The hide on her right leg was gone from her hip down to her ankle. I could see the bone at places. They holed up at a motor court in Oklahoma to tend to Bonnie's wounds. Barrow continued to commit robberies with random local accomplices, while his and Parker's families tended to her serious injuries. The need for medical supplies in such quantities caused the local pharmacist to alert the sheriff. It didn't help that they had registered at a tiny tourist court as three guests but the owner saw five people getting out of the car and buying five meals and five beers from his diner. The owner warned one of his diner patrons, a member of the highway patrol. The sheriff was alerted and called for heavily armed reinforcements. 
The gang barely escaped the ensuing late-night gunfight at the tourist court and another at an abandoned amusement park. But Buck was killed. For the next six weeks, after numerous other robberies and murders, as though it were a game, they risked a trip to Dallas to see their families for the first time in four months. The Texas Rangers vowed to hunt down and kill every member of the gang until finally one of their partners in crime, Henry Methven, recently broken out of prison by Barrow and then recaptured, turned on the pair and offered to set up an ambush. Barrow's route had gone consistent. He was traveling from family home to family home, where they could count on some refuge. They traveled generally in a circle between five states, exploiting a law that kept the police from following a fugitive across a state line. The police had noticed the pattern to their route. If they kept to their travel pattern, they would surely use one little travel dirt road in Bienville Parish, Louisiana. For three days, officers stationed themselves at the side of the road, waiting. On May 23, 1934, on that lonely country lane, the lawmen were waiting hidden in some roadside bushes. The day was sunny, just cool enough for a light jacket. The silence was broken only by a bird now and then, and a light breeze made the trees on either side rustle a little from time to time. You could smell the dry dust of the road warming under the bright sun. About 9 a.m., the police were tired of waiting, almost ready to give up, and then they heard it. A stolen Ford V8 coming along the road fast. Henry Methven stood on the edge of the road. Barrow slowed down to greet him, and as the car drew close to the posse's hiding place, the lawmen opened fire from the bushes even before the car rolled to a stop. It all took less than two minutes. Bonnie had a pistol taped to her leg just in case, but neither of the two had time to return fire. A headshot killed Clyde instantly. That was the last thing Bonnie ever saw. The cops heard her scream. She died there in the front seat leaning against Clyde. The official report said... Each of us six officers had a shotgun and an automatic rifle and pistols. We opened fire with the automatic rifles. They were emptied before the car got even with us. Then we used shotguns. There was smoke coming from the car, and it looked like it was on fire. After shooting the shotguns, we emptied the pistols at the car, which had passed us and ran into a ditch about 50 yards on down the road. We kept shooting at the car even after it stopped. We weren't taking any chances. 
They had fired about 130 rounds, leaving 112 holes in the car. 17 of the shots hit Barrow, 26 shots hit Parker. Found in the car were three light machine guns, assorted handguns, several thousand rounds of ammunition, and 15 sets of license plates from various states. The bodies went on display along with Clyde's jacket riddled with bullet holes, The undertaker who embalmed them reported that the embalming fluid kept leaking out of the holes in their bodies. Clyde's gun was shown, with seven notches carved in the stock to count his kills. Clyde's saxophone was in the car, untouched by any bullet. And Bonnie? She was still wearing the wedding ring from her long-ago marriage. A crowd soon gathered at the roadside scene, nearly everyone collecting souvenirs like shell casings, broken glass, and scraps of clothing from the bodies. A woman cut off bloody locks of Bonnie's hair. One man had opened his pocket knife and reached into the car, trying to cut off Clyde's left ear. All of them were chased away, and the Ford was towed away with the bodies still inside it. A woman who had seen the car on that day as a girl said, I ran and looked at Bonnie, stuck my head in the car and looked. She had fallen forward. I could see her red hair and the rusty red dress she had on. There was a magazine on the floor there. Her hair was kind of lying on there. And then I looked at Clyde and someone jerked the blanket or whatever they had over his face. Well, I just remember his mouth was open, and if I remember right, his eyes were too. But you could tell that he was very dead. It was was just gruesome. None of the posse ever received the promised bounty, about $26,000. Most of the organizations that pledged funds failed to deliver. Instead... The lawmen were told to take whatever they wanted from the items in the car. One of the officers took the guns and ammo, plus a box of fishing tackle. Clyde's mother wrote asking for the return of the guns, but there's no record of any response. In February 1935, 20 family members and friends were arrested and tried for aiding and abetting. The men were marched into the courtroom, linked together by chains around their necks. All 20 were found guilty and got varying sentences, including Bonnie and Clyde's mothers, old and in ill health, who were each given 30 days in prison. They wanted to be buried side by side, but the Parker family would not allow it. More than 20,000 attended her funeral on May 26th, Flowers came from everywhere, including some with cards claiming to be from Pretty Boy Floyd and John Dillinger. The largest floral tribute was sent by a group of Dallas City newsboys because the event sold half a million newspapers in Dallas alone. Bonnie and Clyde rest in different cemeteries, her grave marked with a sentiment that might be from a cheap greeting card. As the flowers are all made sweeter by the sunshine and the dew, so this old world is made brighter by the lives of folk like you. 
Clyde and another brother, Marvin, share a single marker with their names on it and an epitaph Clyde selected, Gone but not forgotten. Now about those cars. The original bullet-riddled Ford Deluxe was soon exhibited at carnivals and fairs, amusement parks and flea markets for three decades. Then it was sold as a collector's item to Whiskey Pete's Casino in Nevada for $250,000. There was a charge of $1 to sit in it. Since 2011, the original car has been on display at Whiskey Pete's. You can see it there, on the plush carpet next to the main cashier cage. But that's not all. No way. You're not getting off so easily. The movie death car, a reproduction, of course, is now the highlight of the Sinister Vehicles Gallery at Alcatraz East in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee, which calls itself America's Most Comprehensive Museum of Crime. A vintage fake death car toured state fairs in the 1940s billed as being the real one. It was a pretty good fake. It's currently at the Volo Auto Museum in Volo, Illinois, which acknowledges it as a fake. Another vintage fake was parked next to the real death car while the fake was shot full of holes to ensure the accuracy of the forgery. It's now on display at historic auto attractions in Roscoe, Illinois, which acknowledges it as a fake. A new car replaced the real reproduction movie death car at the Bonnie and Clyde Ambush Museum in Gibsland, Louisiana. The bullet holes are bigger, and the car is displayed with bloody dummies of Bonnie and Clyde in its front seat. A lemon yellow fake seems to be a recent creation displayed as the movie death car in Las Vegas in the Hollywood Cars Museum. In 2006, the Buckhorn Saloon and Museum in San Antonio, Texas, added a Texas Ranger Museum to its collection with a replica Bonnie and Clyde death car as its centerpiece. This car was carefully faked, assembled from parts purchased from catalogs and eBay, then painted to match the color of the original. Its dozens of bullet holes look real, but were actually painted on by an artist hired specifically for that job. And likely there have been more cars like this. All you have to do is get a 1930s Ford Deluxe, shoot a bunch of holes in it, who's counting, throw a bucket of pig blood on the seats, write a ballet explaining that this is absolutely the one and only original and charge five bucks to sit in it while Mark's pose for photos.
You know I've said something you like, something you hate, something you agree with, something that offends you. What are you waiting for? Drop a comment on the episode webpage at ballycast.com. Love letters straight from your Valleycast is produced by Wayne Kaiser for Blue Ridge Entertainment under a Creative Commons 3.0 attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. That means you can keep it, copy it, share it with a friend, just tell them where it came from, don't change it, and don't sell it. If you enjoyed it, you can subscribe at bellygas.com. Visit us, link to us, subscribe to the podcast, and most importantly, enjoy. Thanks for writing. Please exit to your left. It's just gruesome.